The Human Genome Project was a $3 billion global endeavour which launched in 1990 and took 13 years to complete. But now, thanks to rapid and continuing advances in technology, we can sequence a whole human genome in just a matter of hours. In this episode, we meet a computer scientist who's collaborating with researchers to analyse medical data. And how are new technologies such as machine learning and artificial intelligence driving the future of healthcare research? Hi, I'm Mara Jean Tilly, and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they are working to make our lives better. With me here is Associate Professor Sarah Kummerfeld, Director of Data Science at Garvin. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Sarah, can we start with you telling us about your research? My research sits at the interface of biology, uh, medical research and computer science. Um, And so what I'm interested in doing is trying to get the most out of large volumes of data that we generate now to understand biology. Medical research has become a big data science in the last 10 to 20 years. And what that means is that rather than doing experiments where we generate data that can sit in an Excel file and and be analysed by just anyone, we're at the stage where you need someone who has data analytic skills, machine learning, all of the computer science skills in order to be able to make sense of that large amount of data and and really um, use that in order to drive forward uh, personalised medicine. You're responsible for leading a very significant initiative here at the Garvin. Can you tell us about that? So I'm the Director of Data Science, uh, and what that means is that I am working on how to leverage large volumes of data in order to do a better job of medical research. And so that covers a very broad range of, of areas, right from things that you might think of more as IT, being able to build computers that are large enough and specialised enough to be able to handle the volumes of data that we're talking about, through to software engineering, uh, bioinformatics, engineering pipelines, and then right to the other end where we have specialists in computational biology, machine learning, artificial intelligence, who are at the coalface of analysis and, and can really get the most out of our data in an analytical sense, developing new methods to process data and then understand what it means. And when you talk about large amounts of data, where is the data coming from? So the data we work with comes from a range of different types of sources. Genomics is one of the main ones. So we do a lot of whole genome sequencing. These days, rather than taking just a handful of measurements on a patient, we can measure in individual cells how much of each gene is turned on or off. And so you can imagine the scale of the data. If you're taking, rather than just a handful of measurements, you're taking millions on each patient. Um, So that's one way. We also do work with image data. So there are microscopes now that can look at live cells and they can take videos that have many thousands of frames over a period of time and watch what the cells do and how they move. And what that means is that we can understand cell behaviour, but you need to analyse that data. And you can't do that manually anymore. So we can employ some of the techniques that are used in self-driving cars and also in things like AI being used for radiology and um, histology 
and we can use that in order to understand what's happening in the cells that we're studying. And once you've done your analysis, what are some of the things that the data tells you? So the, the advantage of working with the large volumes of data we have now is that rather than just considering one gene and thinking we know that this gene's important for some particular disease, we can actually look across the whole genome. And so it means that you can think about diseases in a lot more detail across a set of patients. You realise that diseases are not homogenous. If you think about uh, immunological conditions, they might present with similar symptoms or maybe a range of symptoms, but that are all given the same name of a disease. But when you look at the molecular details and you look at the genetics, they can actually be quite varied. And if we can understand how they differ in terms of which genes are turned on and off and, and how they're behaving, then we can do a better job of identifying treatments and predicting who's going to respond to those treatments. And when did computer science become so important for biology? So the shift that I've seen in my career has been from when I was an undergraduate and, and they were just finishing the Human Genome Project. It took many, many hundreds of thousands of hours and billions of dollars to sequence a single genome. And so that already gave us a huge amount of data and it already brought biology into the big data science realm and needed data science. But we are at a whole other level now. So since then, since around 2000, we've gotten to the point where it's uh, feasible to sequence patients' genomes, many patients' genomes. So we now have large cohorts, hundreds of patients, and we can sequence every single one of their genomes. And then we can bring that information together to try to understand disease. And so it just gives us a lot more power to look in detail and nuance at what's happening on an individual level and to understand variation um, across patients. So rather than just one genome, we're now dealing with many thousands on a routine basis. I would imagine when science becomes so technologically advanced like this, it must be quite expensive. It is expensive. Uh, there are, the experiments themselves are incredibly expensive. The machines that we use have a pretty short lifespan. We're talking maybe three to five years and we need the next one because the pace of progress is so fast. So we're looking at millions of dollars for that equipment. And then, you know, the cost of sequencing an individual genome has decreased a lot and that's what's made it feasible to do. So we're at the point now where with the latest technology coming out this year, we expect it to be closer to about three, $400 per genome, which is pretty incredible, but it still adds up once you want to do thousands. So on the data side, it also gets expensive. A single genome is around 500 gigabytes of data and then we need to analyse that. And so we talk about around 600 CPU hours to do the initial processing of a genome. And that's just to get us to the stage where the analysts can actually do something with it. So then we need people. They're really expensive. And then they have to um, make sense of the information. And then forevermore, we probably want to store that data because it's useful. and You don't want to just throw it away. So we have more than five petabytes of data stored at Garvin. And it grows fast. We're, we're always trying to optimise and, and compress and reduce. And it still grows faster than we can keep up with. And how do you secure the data? So security is something that's absolutely top of mind for us. And there are different ways that we store our data that have different challenges. We have large capacity in-house for doing computational analysis. And we have a security team that works to make sure that's locked down. We also have more recently been using a lot of commercial cloud. So Google 
Amazon, Microsoft, and uh, those platforms have the advantage that they have very large security teams. But we still have to be across it. There are mistakes you can make that could let someone in. So this is something that we take really seriously and we have people dedicated to checking that we are on top of. The other thing that we have that's a big advantage in the work we do, our data is all de-identified. We don't store patient names for the work that we're doing. So even if someone did hack in, they're not going to be able to see whose data that is. Sarah, you've worked not just in academia, but also in industry for one of the world's first biotech companies. Can you tell us more about your experience in that industry? So I spent 10 years in industry at the biotech company Genentech in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Genentech was, is generally considered the first biotech company. It was started in the 1970s and um, it was a really great experience to, to work there. A lot of fantastic researchers. It also gave me a really strong understanding of what it is to get science into the clinic. So I worked on taking diagnostics through to clinical trials. So we were we had some drugs that were in clinical trials and we wanted to make sure that when we selected patients for the trials that they were actually going to benefit from the treatment. And so we had developed molecular diagnostics based on genetics to identify relevant patients and then I worked on a phase 2B clinical trial getting that into the clinic. And so that was really eye-opening. It's a big difference sitting in a a research lab asking very basic research questions compared to getting this information into some format that you can actually get it into patients. Um, And so it was great to understand how that actually happens. The other thing that I really enjoyed about being in industry is that we were, the entire company was pulling in the same direction. So we were all working to get a certain number of drugs over the line to the next stage of early development or through a particular phase of, of drug development. And it meant that the atmosphere was very collaborative. There were many different teams working together with their expertise, bring it to the table. And that's something that I've really tried to bring back to academia with me. It, academia absolutely can be collaborative, but I think the incentives are less clear. And so it's something we have to work hard to do. I also felt that industry did a really good job of of training managers and a lot of soft skills. And so there are a lot of things I learned in my time there that I've, I've tried to bring back with me as well. How important is it to integrate data science as a discipline across the Garvin Institute? So I think that's a great question. We are, I have a vision for Garvin that every PhD student and postdoc who comes through Garvin, will leave with a certain level of computational skill. I think it's an important life skill in general that helps you with everything um, because being able to analyse data is incredibly valuable. But what we're doing to, to reach that goal is running an education program. And so there are some basic level to teach basic programming um, and then higher levels to make sure that people are learning best practice um, and then also very specific areas of focus, so particular types of analyses in genomics, single cell and image analysis. And then even further, because the field moves so fast, we need to help upskill. Even our computational experts need to always be learning. So we're leveraging expertise we have in-house and have it. my system is that everyone in the data science platform has to teach. And so they have to teach at least one course this year. And that'll be something that they're expert in. And then it, it may be pitched at a senior level for people who are already computationally savvy, or it can be for people who've never done any programming before to get them started. 
And what exciting projects are you currently working on? So one of our big projects is connecting with uh, research groups across Australia to develop Australia's national genomics infrastructure. So at this point, Australia hasn't had a a system for easily being able to share, store, annotate um, genomic information across different uh, research groups. So it's pretty siloed. Individual groups have their data, and if you want to share it, someone has to ask another research group and then send it over. And so... There's been a lot of work over the last few years to develop a a plan for how that should happen in Australia and we're now getting to the implementation stage. And so we're very involved with that process and um, helping to build out infrastructure just to make sure that we really get the most out of the genomic information in Australia. Um, And so one way that we've been doing that is through a pilot project that we ran in collaboration with Google. The concept here is that we wanted to establish whether it was feasible to process large volumes of genomic information quickly on Australian infrastructure. Because one of the criticisms had been that commercial cloud providers have capacity overseas and sure they've demonstrated you can run large data sets overseas but many genomic cohorts have to stay in Australia and you can't leverage overseas infrastructure. So we decided to put it to the test. So we ran a 14,000 genome pilot uh, which we completed in two weeks And that was the largest data set of its kind that had been processed in Australia. And not only that, it really didn't get anywhere close to the capacity that Google has locally. It was their busiest time of year, and we still never got beyond about a third of their systems, which are growing anyway. So I think it demonstrated pretty clearly that the commercial cloud is a great way to process genomic data in Australia and will be part of the uh, Australian genomic infrastructure going forward. And what's the status of that project now? So the next step for that project is going to be building it out. Um, We're really excited to be working with Australian Genomics and BioPlatforms Australia to be able to start to move this through to the implementation phase. We've got some small projects already underway and then some larger ones in the works and we're looking forward to that progressing quite soon. Technology is moving so fast right now. What's the next big innovation that will help you with your research? So the most exciting area that I'm looking forward to working on this year is improving how we use machine learning and AI. And I think, you know, if you if you ask me what's the, the one big opportunity going forward, it's improving how we use machine learning in biology and medicine. And it's already been shown you can do incredible things with self-driving cars, using machine learning, um, also Just recently, there's been advances, ChatGPT, which is a technology that you can ask to write an essay and it'll do it for you um, using machine learning. And we need to leverage that more in in medical research. So we're starting to. We've got some some examples in the imaging space where we're uh, using deep learning, which is the technology used in self-driving cars, to be able to analyse live cells. I think we're just scratching the surface with what we can do using machine learning and AI in medical research and the opportunities are incredible and will be uh, implemented very, very soon. We're, we are, it is now the time for this, this technology to take off. And how is Australia placed in terms of advancing these technologies into medical research? Yeah, Australia has the opportunity to be a leader in many of these components. So the the National Genomics Infrastructure Project is a good example of that, where 
we're coming together as a nation. We've got really good collaboration and an opportunity to actually lead the world. We're not there yet, but I think we've got all the pieces in place to, to be leaders. On the machine learning front, we've got a lot of great talent locally and we're doing everything we can to bring them on at Garvin. And so I, I think we also have plenty of opportunities there to, to be leaders in the space. When you talk about talent, what kind of people and occupations are working to implement this technology? The type of people that work within the data science pillar and platform are at Garvin are really varied. We've got people who have hardware expertise building out computers. We've got software engineers. We have people who think a lot about how to process large data sets. And then we have machine learning experts and statisticians and computational biologists. It really takes many kinds. And, you know, I, I was struck by recently rereading the double helix and, and looking at how the structure of DNA was first solved. And I think the key there was that it brought together an interdisciplinary team. And it really took physicists and chemists and biologists and people thinking about all these different areas to reach that milestone. And so I think it's, it's the same here. We need people of many different disciplines to come together to make the next leap. Science and medical research inevitably involve failures or setbacks. How do you personally deal with that? In my field, we are constantly making mistakes and things don't work um, and they have to be re-engineered. But I think from a very early stage in my career, I learned that that's just the process and it's not something that you have to take too hard. So long as you make sure that you fail early, it, that's fine. You can always come back the next day and, and try something different. Um, and so, yeah, we don't take it too hard. It's part of the process. Why data science? How did you get into this field? So I was interested in genetics and genomics from a pretty young age. Um, I just found it incredible that we had the diversity that we do and, and diseases caused by changes in genes. So I knew I wanted to get into genetics and I thought that that would be a really interesting area. And as I got towards the end of high school, I realised that the volumes of data that were already starting to be generated would mean that you needed to be able to program to make sense of them. So I decided by the end of high school that I wanted to combine biology, medical research with computer science. And it was actually surprising at that point that quite a few universities just said, oh, you can't do that. You can't combine computer science and biology. I mean, I was lucky that Sydney Uni um, had already decided bioinformatics was a thing and made that possible. Genetics and genomics was what I was really passionate about. And I thought that computer science would be a useful tool to make that feasible. Sarah, before we let you go back to the world of computer and data science, we need to ask you the fast five. What do you do in your spare time? I am an avid runner. You'll find me on the weekend running around Sydney for as long as I can stay on my feet. What's your secret skill? I play the violin in a community orchestra. Do you have a favourite piece? Um, the Elgar Cello Concerto, preferably with Jacqueline Dupre. Most memorable holiday? As a kid, I took an amazing holiday where we rented a canal boat and travelled down the canals in France, stopping at little towns, having delicious food. It was amazing. What are you reading at the moment? Right now I'm reading The Codebreaker, which is about uh, Nobel laureate uh, Jennifer Doudna. Uh, Jennifer Doudna recently won a Nobel Prize for her work developing CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology that's already shown incredible promise for the future of genetic engineering. Thank you so much. 
Professor Sarah Kummerfeld. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to know more about Professor Sarah Kummerfeld's research or the work of the Garvin Institute, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilley. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.